Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are at Thessalonica. They've been to the synagogue three Sabbath days in a row. They've been teaching from the scriptures at the Jewish Sabbath worship. And of course, as we know from the passage that was read at the very beginning of our service this evening by Colin, when Paul speaks, he always points to Christ, to the Messiah, to the one who died and who rose again. And so effective was his reasoning, his explaining, and his demonstrating, and so persuasive was his passion for the gospel that some of those Jews were converted. A lot of the Gentile God-fearers who came to the Jewish services were converted, and quite a few of the leading women of the city were converted. But no matter where Paul preaches, His message always divides people into two different groups. The gospel is always thus. For it divides society right down the middle. It divides us into the saved and the lost, the only two types of people that there are. I had just gone to a new church some years ago. And I was only there a couple of months when I was faced with a dilemma. I was accused of being divisive and having preferences among the people. Let me explain why. There was a time of rejoicing. A young woman was having a new baby. It was a very happy time, obviously. And one of the women of the church confided to Jeanette, my wife, that it was so exciting because we will have a lovely christening to look forward to in the church. The problem was that when she came to see me about this and inquired about it, I had to ask her a few questions. One of the questions I asked her was, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus? Are you saved? How do you know you're a Christian? Oh, she said, I believe in God. Mm, Yeah, I know. The, The devil believes in God. So how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you've been saved? Tell me how you became a Christian. Well, I've been going to church with my mum and dad from I was a small child. Ah, yes, I know. I've seen you here often. Now tell me, how do you know that you're a believer? What makes you a Christian? Are you saved? Well, I wouldn't go as far as that. And you're having a wee baby. I am. Well, you know, that's wonderful. I think it's nice that you're having a wee baby. And it's marvellous. And it's something to rejoice about, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you're excited about it. Yes, I am. Do you know what we'll do? 
we'll bring you up to the front of the church some Lord's Day morning and we'll pray for your wee baby. And we'll ask the Lord that your wee baby one day would come to know the Lord Jesus as his saviour or her saviour. They went to the Methodists. The same lady afterwards, who had been so excited about this new baby's arrival, wasn't just so enthusiastic. She now had a completely different opinion of me for a start. She said that I was dividing the church, that I was showing favoritism, and that I was making differences. At least she had the gumption to say it to my face. And my answer was, aye, you're right, so I am. I agreed to the charges laid. There's a difference between a Christian and an unbeliever, and especially when it comes to the administration of the sacraments. I was totally unapologetic. There is a difference between the saved and the lost. The gospel divides us in time and in eternity. In fact, the Lord Jesus warns us about this. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34 to verse 36, he says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now in Thessalonica, that division between the saved and the lost is not only obvious, it is violent. Let's look at the way it it happened in Thessalonica. This mob rule that seems to go on here. And what I want to do for a minute is to look at the, some of the personalities, some of the people who are involved here. The first people we see are the Jews in verse 5. There were the Jews which believed not, who were moved with envy. Verse 5. Jews which believed not, moved with envy. Well, you can understand to some extent, can't you? These Jews were enraged by Paul's success in evangelism. You could almost feel sympathy for them, for they had invited this rabbi from Antioch to come and speak in their synagogue. They'd welcomed him when he arrived. They'd invited him to speak, as would be the custom, and he had used the opportunity given to him to persuade some people to actually leave the synagogue and worship with him and Silas instead. How would we feel if we invited someone to come along and speak at a meeting and they used the opportunity to get people to leave the assembly? I'm sure I've told you this before, but I can't remember a man opened a youth work in a village in County Andrew. And before he did that youth work, he went round all the local ministers and he invited them to support this new work and to encourage their young people to attend. And they took counsel together and they decided to seek assurances from him that his intentions were sincere, that he did not intend to begin some kind of a church in opposition to other more established gospel preaching works 
in that area. And having given that assurance solemnly, they supported him, only to find that he did the very opposite of what he had promised. And the assurances that he gave them proved to be worthless. And a local, fundamentally evangelical minister later told me how disappointed he was and how he had withdrawn his support. Now, we might, in that sense, have some sympathy with these Jews, except that in their case, Paul makes it absolutely clear that they had no right to complain. For they themselves had every opportunity given by God to walk in his ways. They'd been given opportunity to repent of their sins over and over again. They'd been given their opportunity for thousands of years to be faithful to God. In First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul makes this very clear. He talks about these very people, these Jews, motivated with envy. And he says that they were the people who had killed the Lord Jesus. They'd killed their own prophets, and they have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. When you think of that, any sympathy we might have had for these Jews moved with envy, unbelieving Jews, ebbs away. They were deliberately and consciously in opposition to God. So there were the Jews. Now we have another group. And I, I've called them the gougers. <laughs> I hope that's not a bad word, is it? I don't know why it is. I hope it's not anyway. It was a, let me look at it with you. It says, these Jews, they took on to them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. And the only reason I'm calling them what I'm calling them is that it conjures up an image for me. Back in the early 70s, in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, when I was in the police service, we had a, we had a term for people who would hang about street corners looking for trouble. And I say, I hope it's not a bad word. We used to call them gougers. And they were people who just hung about, you know, looking for bother. If there was anybody walking down the road, they would scrounge money off them, or, or they'd be looking for drink, or they'd be looking for a fight. One evening in the mid-90s, I was on a visit to Dublin with a Christian businessman and his good lady wife from England. We were staying in a hotel, and they wanted to go to this fancy restaurant for their evening meal. And since they were paying, I agreed that I would take them. And so we came out of the hotel, and it was a fine summer evening, and they decided they would walk. So we walked through Dublin, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the evening and we had to go up a street that was deserted but as we came halfway up that street there were a group of these men hanging about probably 
winos or alcoholics. We would have called them gougers. Deadbeats, looking for trouble, shouting and insulting everybody who passed by, drinking wine out of bottles and cheap wine. And they must have recognised my friends by their form of dress would be quite well off. They were. And they began to act in a hostile manner. And the poor English lady became a wee bit nervous. But my friend, Steve, who was walking, him and the wife were walking just in front of me, and I was behind them. And he turned round to his wife, and he put his arm round her shoulder, and he took her, he took her, her by the arm, and he says, Now, don't you worry a thing, dear. He had this loud English accent. Don't you, which I'm not going to try and replicate. Don't you worry about a thing, dear. Bob used to be in the RUC. <laughs> this is the middle of Dublin, up a back street, where a bunch of yahoos. And I'm saying, please, keep that English voice down and don't mention the RUC. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm here all on my own. These two are going to be no use to me. The worst possible thing you could do. But you see, there's people like that in every town centre, isn't there? Drive through the town centres, and you'll see people looking for a fight. And it's not too hard to get them stirred up, as we have seen in our own province here over the past week or so. Very soon, a rabble can be roused, and a fight can begin. So the Jews didn't find it too hard to go down into the marketplace and find these certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and cause an uproar. But notice carefully, it's not the gospel preachers who are causing this noisy riot. It's those who oppose the gospel. And so they go around with this rabble that they've gathered up, these bunch of street fighters looking for Paul and Silas. So we have the Jews And we have this bunch of rabble. And then we have the converts. They set all the city on an uproar. Verse 5 again. And they assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Seems that Paul and Silas and Timothy were lodging at a house, the house of a man called Jason. And when the mob attacked that house, Jason was there, along with some other brethren, the converts of Thessalonica. There's an interesting fact, and I don't know who Jason was. We don't know very much about him, sure we don't. Um, Except that he lived in Thessalonica, and except that he was a convert to Christianity. And he gets a mention in Romans chapter 16 and verse 21, where Paul writes, Timotheus, my workfellow, and Lucius and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. If Jason and Sosipater were together linked by the word and, then Jason might have been one of his kinsmen, maybe a Jew or maybe from Tarsus. So I couldn't find anything much about Jason in the Bible dictionaries because there's not much said about him. But one interesting fact I discovered was when I searched the internet 
and put Jason's name into Google. And it came up with the fact that Jason is venerated as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. And guess when his saint's day is? The 12th of July. And it's celebrated with a riot every year. There is a riot going on and Jason is there. So Jason is frog-marched out to the court where he's going to be charged with insurrection even though it was he who is the victim of this unprovoked violence. Well, that's the background. Now we get to the point. Let's look at verse 6. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren onto the rulers of the city, crying, Those that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now you should mark that verse in your Bible. The disciples have turned the world upside down. Let's see with what Jason and his brethren are charged with. Um, First of all, receiving and harboring, giving shelter to the disciples or the apostles, providing for their well-being, promoting their interests. So the court and rulers have, and the people have heard the character of those men being torn to shreds before them. But look at the nature of the charges against Paul and against the other apostles. The first charge is that they have overturned the established order. Turned the world upside down. The accusation, of course, is that they're troublemakers. No matter where they go, they cause trouble, cause riots, serious misrepresentation of the facts. Riots, if you've been following in the book of Acts, riots follow almost everywhere that the gospel message goes, but it's usually the Jews that are responsible for them. And yet it's an interesting accusation. Because, listen, the gospel turns everything on its head, doesn't it? Think about that. When a sinner hears the gospel, when a sinner repents and trusts in Christ, their life is radically changed, for the effects of the fall are reversed in that life. You see, this natural world in which we live is not what it was meant to be. It is turned on its head. It is upside down. In the philosophies of this world, terrorists are good people who are fit for government. In this world, the natural order of a man and a woman in a lifelong faithful marriage is becoming more and more despised every day. I, I, I despair with novels. It used to be I enjoyed a good novel. You could buy a novel, and I do a lot of reading for preparation. Um, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of theology books. I read a lot of history books. And sometimes I just like to get a good novel and go away for a day or so and sit and read a novel to give my mind a rest. And you can hardly do that now. I bought a new novel a week or two ago. I brought it home. And what did I find in it but an introduction of some character in the novel, a woman professor and her wife. It's everywhere. Isn't it? 
used to be you had to keep your television turned off or, or use it very selectively. You can hardly pick up a book in the shelf. Now, you can't pick up a book in a shelf at all, man, but you can hardly buy a book online now, a secular book that's not making some kind of political point. Natural world is upside down. Disease-ridden sexual promiscuity is fine in this world. So long as the participants are consenting adults and take precautions. It's the way they talk. In this world, unborn babies are inconveniences to be disposed of. In this world, you have your truth and I have my truth and my truth is as valid as yours and it just goes on and on. And the effects of true conversion. And isn't it the case that the Northern Ireland Assembly now wants to debate banning conversion therapy? And the effect of true conversion, a work of the Holy Spirit, is to turn all of the ideologies of this world on their head. To reverse the fall. That's why you cannot legislate for to stop the Holy Spirit doing the work of converting sinners. The most radical overturn of all is when a sinner is brought from death onto life. Matthew Henry here says in one sense it is true that wherever the gospel comes in its power to any place, to any soul, that it may be said to turn the world upside down in that soul. The love of the world is rooted out of the heart. The way of the world is contradicted in the life so that the world is turned upside down there. These people have turned the world upside down. Yes, they had. The next accusation is sedition. They do all contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now that's a serious charge. That's a charge that could lead to serious forms of punishment. To be an enemy of the state, it would like being a traitor. There's no particular law enacted in Rome at this time making Christianity a crime. That would come later. So no specific law in this indictment, but a general accusation that Christians and the Christian faith are in conflict with the decrees of the ungodly government. Now, we don't want that to be so. We want the government to rule and to govern us with godly principles. But of course... When the government legislates against the gospel, they're obliged to say that we disagree with that. And then there's another accusation, a more specific one, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 47 deals with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. And the Heidelberg Catechist tells us there that God's kingdom is 
within us. God ruling over our lives and us surrendering to that kingly rule. It is also ahead of us when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, being a subject of God's kingdom, living under God's rule, is going to bring us continually in opposition to the values of this earth. We say that Jesus is king, and that means to put him first, whatever the cost, for we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's how the world's looking at Christians. People who stand the values and principles of the established order of, of this world on their head. When in fact Jesus, through his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his suffering and resurrection from the dead, he has turned everything in this world the right way up. He has restored what the fall has broken. So Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 15 was able to say, if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Lastly, I want you to see the decision of the council, for it was a wise decision, and it's in verse 8. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. A wise decision, that. Unlike Philippi, there's no humiliation, no baiting, no imprisonment in Thessalonica like there had been in Philippi. The city fathers in Thessalonica acted in a more temperate manner, fearful perhaps of coming to the attention of the authorities in Rome. Maybe having heard what happened in Philippi and being worried in case once again they beat Roman citizens and brought themselves under the gaze of Caesar himself. Maybe that's why Luke records that the city and its governors were troubled, but the local magistrates had to be seen to do something. They had to act. They had to watch their back. Rome is suspicious of any kind of disquiet. But these charges are clearly without merit. Paul and the apostles had done no wrong, unless talking and thinking and reasoning are a crime. They had to do something. And so to be seen to do something, rather than let the situation develop, look what they did. They released Jason and others on bail. But like our modern magistrates court would do. When they find someone guilty and then bind them over on their own cognizance to keep the peace. They set a bail figure and they told him to go away and behave themselves. Very sensible. And look at how Paul and Silas responded to this decision. They decided to leave the new church there, to leave it under its present leadership. 
to allow it to grow and develop while they moved on simple common sense, suggesting that there's a time to withdraw for the benefit of others. Verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night on to Berea. And that's where we find them next. 